We open the Holy Scriptures to Isaiah chapter 57. We will read the entire chapter and the text which we focus our attention upon this evening is verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore, against whom do ye sport yourselves, against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They, they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured a drink offering, thou hast offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Upon a lofty and high mountain hast thou set thy bed, even thither wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. Behind the doors also and the posts hast thou set up thy remembrance, for thou hast discovered thyself to another than me, and art gone up. Thou hast enlarged thy bed and made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed where thou sawest it. And thou wentest to the king with ointment and didst increase thy perfumes and didst send thy messengers far off and didst debase thyself even unto hell. Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way, yet saidst thou not, there is no hope. Thou hast found the life of thine hand, therefore thou wast not grieved. And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared that thou hast lied and hast not remembered me nor laid it to thy heart? Have not I held my peace even of old and thou fearest me not? I will declare thy righteousness and thy works for they shall not profit thee. When when thou criest, let let thy companies deliver thee, but the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them, but he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land, and shall inherit my holy mountain, and shall say, Cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I be always wroth. For the spirit would fail before me, and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth, and smote him. I hid me, and was wroth, and he went on frowardly in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, and will heal him. I will lead him also, and restore comforts unto him, And to his mourners, I create the fruit of the lips, peace 
Peace to him that is afar off, and to him that is near, saith the Lord, I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Verse 15 is the text. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, it can be difficult diving straight into a book like Isaiah, a book containing many complicated prophecies of judgment and salvation interwoven with one another. And so to appreciate the text that is before us, to appreciate it fully, we need a little context. We have a text that sets forth beautiful words of gospel comfort, but a text that's situated in a very sharp chapter of warning and judgment. You'll recall from Bible history that the prophet Isaiah prophesied to Judah, the Old Testament church, on the eve of the Babylonian captivity. Isaiah's ministry lasted through the reign of good King Hezekiah. And part of the burden that was given to Isaiah was that he was given a vision and a prophecy concerning the coming chastisement of Judah in the form of the Babylonian captivity. And thus, Isaiah contains many oracles of judgment concerning that captivity. It's a lengthy book with 66 chapters, but an easy way to remember the main contents of the book of Isaiah is to remember its two halves. This lengthy book has two main parts to it. The first part of the book, chapters 1-39, through is mainly filled with oracles of judgment against the nations and against the impenitent in Judah. But chapters 40 through 66, the second half of the book, has been called the book of comfort. And though there is prophecy of judgment woven throughout the last half of the book as well, in chapters 40 through 66, a certain figure comes to the foreground, a figure who is called the servant of Jehovah, the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. And the focus shifts to the glorious salvation that will come to God's people through the work of this servant of Jehovah, this promised Savior, Jesus Christ. And thus the glory of God's grace in the coming Christ shines the more brilliantly against the backdrop of the dark storm clouds of looming judgment. Thus the book of Isaiah while it warns us powerfully against sin and against idolatry and against covenant apostasy turning away from our God, it is a book that at the same time brings out the riches of God's grace so beautifully, so comfortingly. And that's what our text does. Chapter 57 is situated in the book of comfort, the second half of Isaiah. And yet, as you could tell, in reading chapter 57, it is a chapter of sharp, of sharp rebuke that God brings to the people of Judah. It is spoken 
Especially to the impenitent sinners in Judah. Warning them of the judgment to come. God rebukes Judah for her calloused indifference and persistence in sin. Particularly the sin of idolatry that so many were engrossed in. In this chapter, Isaiah likens idolatry to a kind of spiritual adultery. Emphasizing the grievous nature of that sin. And how offensive it is to God when His people turn away from Him. And give themselves to God's who are no gods at all. Thus, the warning that ends the chapter, there is no peace to the wicked. But with verses 13 and 14, we have a promise of God that is set forth. Comforting words to contrite believers. Those that put their trust in me, God says, that is those who trust not in themselves, who trust not in their own works, but who trust only in me, they shall be saved. And though God's hand of chastening would be extended and laid upon the entire nation of Judah, for one and all in one way or another partook of Judah's sins, yet as verse 18 says, God will heal them. He will restore comforts unto his mourners. And mourners there describes the true believers in Judah who had been brought to see their sin, who were humbled and contrite before God. Thus our text, verse 15, begins with that word, for. God says in 13 and 14, those who trust in me will be saved. And now our text shows the steadfastness and the certainty of that promise. God can be trusted. When God says he will save, he will save. And the trustworthiness of God's word and his promise is rooted in who God is. And that's the truth that especially comes out in our text that we're going to focus on tonight. The truth of who God is. Isaiah 57 verse 15 gives us a wonderful picture of who God is in himself. The glory of his divine nature. And we want to see That that comforts us. All comfort and assurance of salvation ultimately is grounded upon the bedrock of who God is. His nature. His character. Because He is who He is, He can be trusted. Because He is who He is, we can rest in Him. Knowing the nature and the character Of the one true and living God. Is the bedrock of joy. Peace. And hope. Isaiah 57 verse 15. Transports us into the heights. Of theology. But let us see that the heights of theology. Are very down to earth. Very practical. For our everyday life. When we see something of who God is. And who he is to us. That lifts the heart. That comforts the soul. That strengthens the hands. Of the Christian. 
for every part of this life here and now. So, let this inspired word of God lead us through some lofty theology that can be so beautifully applied to our lives. The main idea of the text is our theme, namely that the lofty one dwells with a lowly people. So our theme is the lofty dwelling with the lowly. We're first going to look at the lofty God as he is revealed in this text. Secondly, we will look at the lowly people, his lowly people with whom he is pleased to dwell. And then finally, the lifting grace spoken about at the end of our text, the lifting grace that God gives us each day. The text sets God before us. Behold him by faith. Behold him as he reveals himself in his word. This is who God is. The high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Whose name is holy. Here we are given a glimpse of the unsurpassable majesty and the unsearchable glory of the true and living God and the foundation of all true religion is the awe and adoration of this God for who He is. He is the high and lofty one. Literally rendered from the Hebrew He who is high and lifted up. This is a title that is used for God only in the book of Isaiah. You can find it one other place early in Isaiah's prophecy. The well-known chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. Where Isaiah says, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. This is a title of God. He is the high and lifted up one. The high and lofty one. And this name reveals the exalted nature of his divine being. His supreme glory. When we speak about the glory of God. When the Bible speaks about the glory of God. It's talking about the radiance of his divine being. The shining forth of all of his infinite perfections. The splendor of his divine attributes. He is the high and lofty one. God is holy other. Transcendent. Infinitely exalted above all that is called creature. There's a rhetorical question in Isaiah 40 verse 25 which makes this very point where God himself says, To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? And the answer is none. God is God alone. The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. And that part of the text could more literally be rendered, he who dwells eternally lives forever. And this phrase brings out yet more of the glory, the splendor of God's being. He dwells eternally. Meaning, he is eternal. He is eternal. Without beginning, without end. But understand, we have to think about that rightly. The idea of God's being as eternal is not that He lives 
within time, but that time is just endless. That God is eternal means He is exalted above time. He is beyond time. He is not bound by time. Yes, the text says He inhabits eternity, but that's creature language that accommodates our own limited understanding. God can't be put in any box. We inhabit various spheres, various realms. We inhabit this world. We inhabit our house. And these things contain us. God cannot be contained. He is above and beyond even time itself. After all, time is a creature that He made. That means in God's divine life, there is not a succession of moments. There is no past or future, but only an eternal present. And that comes out in God's covenant name, Jehovah, which means in the Hebrew, I am. God is. We really don't have the vocabulary to fully capture this splendid perfection of God. He is beyond time. And human words fail us to describe it. And because God is eternal, the God who inhabiteth eternity, that means He's also unchangeable. God doesn't become the way we become. As time progresses in our life, we become, we grow, we get older, we change. But God does not grow, He does not develop, He does not become. He is from age to age the same. As James 1 verse 17 says, in Him there is no variableness. For the scientific or mathematically minded, that's quite something, isn't it? There are no variables in God. Steadfast. The same. Thus he says in Malachi 3.16, For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And there you see how the, the promises of God rest upon the bedrock of who God is in himself. He is the eternal unchanging one and therefore he will not change on you. He will not change on you. Everything else may change. Other people may change on you. But God never changes. Getting deeper into what the text reveals of God. The high and lofty one who inhabiteth eternity. The text teaches us that this God is an independent God. He lives forever, dwells eternally. He is beyond time, and we can add also that He is beyond space. He is everywhere present, meaning He is not confined to any part of space. But the fullness of His divine being is present in every point of space. You can't contain Him. Such a God is an independent God, meaning He is self-sufficient. He has life in Himself and of Himself. And this is something that sets God apart from everything else we know. And should lead us to marvel at the glory of who He is. Everything else we know of came from somewhere. Every other living thing gets its life from somewhere else. God doesn't get His life. From somewhere else. He did not come. From somewhere else. He is not a being. Who rests upon. Or depends upon another. To give him life. But God has life in and of himself. 
As Paul says in Acts 17 verse 28, in Him we live and move and have our being. We only move because God gives us motion. We only live because He gives us life. We only exist because God holds us in existence. But God, He lives in Himself. He moves of Himself. He possesses the eternal fount of His own being within Himself. He upholds all things, but nothing upholds Him. He supplies the needs of all of the works of His hands, but nothing supplies His needs because He has no needs. He is the self-sufficient, self-existent One, the high and lofty God. To use the Bible's picture language again, Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, God is the rock. A rock is something that cannot be moved, that is stable, that is there. God is the rock. The bedrock upon which all of reality rests. Yet He is a God who is close, who is near, who is nigh at hand, not afar off. But as we sang in the the first Psalter number, Psalm 113, who condescends to see and know the things of heaven and earth below. One more perfection that the text sets before us. God is the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity whose name is holy. The previous attributes that the text has set before us are attributes of God's divine nature. But here we come to one of God's ethical attributes. The idea of the text is not that God's holiness is simply a quality of His name, but rather holy is His name. Thus, in the Old Testament, God is at times referred to as the Holy One. The basic idea of holiness is separation from what is evil and impure and consecration to what is good and pure. That God is holy means He is ethically perfect. He is good. In every sense of the word. And in fact, every sense of the word good is not adequate to describe who God is. He is the good one. He is the supreme good. He is pure. Again, our creature words can't adequately describe it. We have a beautiful text in 1 John 1 verse 5 which says God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And there the light is used as a picture to describe for us the holiness, the purity of God. He is light. In Him is no darkness at all. Nothing taints His purity, His goodness. And as the Holy One, God seeks the chief good. And the ultimate good is His own glory. And thus, all things that He purposes, all things that He does, are for that end, the glorification of His name. We can put it this way, God's holiness is a righteous self-centeredness. Now, we understand that to be self-centered is wrong for us. But it's right for God. He is the supremely good one. And holiness is seeking and pursuing and consecrating oneself to the good. It is right and good that God seek His own glory above all. Holiness for us creatures is a 
God-centeredness, pursuing His glory above all. The high, the lofty one is also the holy one. And that holiness too undergirds the confidence we have in His Word. As the Holy One, He keeps His Word. And His holiness inspires His faithfulness. His holiness stands there behind the pity that He has as a father for His children, just as His holiness is the consuming fire that God is to the wicked. He is the Holy One. Now let's put that all together. The high, the lofty God that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. The text reveals the unsurpassable majesty and the unsearchable glory of God. Do we not want to bend our knees and worship Him? He is worthy to be lifted up upon the praises of His people, upon the praise of all creation. God deserves to be worshipped. That is something that must sink into our hearts and live there. God deserves to be worshipped. There is nothing more important for the human being than to worship and to adore this God. And that's why idolatry is such a heinous offense to him. That's why this chapter spends so much time rebuking the idolatry of Judah. There is nothing more heinous than when creatures refuse to acknowledge this God and bow before Him. And there is nothing more beautiful, enriching, satisfying, than when the creature bends the knee and worships this God. The high, lofty, holy one. The supremely beautiful one. Nothing satisfies the soul like beholding and worshiping God. Worship sanctifies the soul. Worship reorients, redirects us to what is truly good and what truly matters. Worship is conducive to spiritual health. The spiritually healthy person is the one who stands daily in awe and adoration of the one true God. And nothing is more spiritually dangerous. And nothing leads to spiritual sickness quite like losing a sense of, the, of awe and adoration before this God for who He is. Let us see Him for who He is. And adore Him. But now, one last thing to point out. The end of the first point of this lofty God. Go back to that word inhabiteth. That sets forth one more wonder of who God is. That word inhabiteth is the very same Hebrew word as the word dwell which appears later in the verse. And this word reveals something about who God is. We've gone through his attributes. Marvelous attributes. But this word inhabit, this word dwell, emphasizes this. God is a personal God. He is a relational God. He is a God who doesn't just exist, but dwells. And you catch the difference of meaning there. Lots of things exist. 
rocks exist. Trees exist. Even the billions of stars that we see in the night sky exist. They exist because God put them there. God knows the names of the starry host and brings them out in their number. But God is a God who not merely exists, but lives, dwells. He is personal, relational, dwelling. That word in the scripture is a word that brims with warm, relational content. To dwell with is to share your life with. To have communion with. To enjoy fellowship with. To be friends with. To share a mutual knowledge and love with another person. God is the dwelling God. And just as he is the living God within himself. He is also the dwelling God within himself. And here another lofty truth of theology comes into the picture. Trinity. God is one God. But there are three distinct divine persons. Who equally share that one divine essence. So that there is one God. But three persons who are that one God. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. All say. I am the high and lofty one. Who inhabiteth eternity. Whose name is holy. God lives. In that perfect life of fellowship. Within himself. He's a dwelling. Relational. God. Thus the lofty theology of the Trinity is so very down to earth, is it not? This is the very nature of God. And because God is who God is, He approaches His people, not as an abstract power, not as a heavenly tyrant, but He approaches His people as the living God of relationship, of fellowship, a personal God who dwells. And who seeks to glorify himself by dwelling with a people. And that brings us to his lowly people. The second point. Which is really the heart of this text. The text begins setting God before us. So that we may stand in awe at the fact That this lofty God dwells with a lowly people such as you and me. God himself says in the text. And this is a message of comfort to his people. Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity whose name is holy. And here's where the quotation marks begin. Here's where God's words directly spoken to you tonight begin. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and a humble spirit. The high and lofty one dwells with the lowly. That's amazing from the perspective of our creatureliness. That all by itself. As creatures, we are lowly. We saw that this morning. God knows our frame. That we are dust. His nature is so exalted. Ours is so lowly. God transcends space and time. We are confined by space and bound by time. God is independent and has life in and of himself. We are dependent, needy creatures who cannot exist for a moment 
without God and the gift of life from Him. What a contrast there is between God's loftiness and our creaturely lowliness. But that isn't the main contrast that the text is setting before us. The main contrast is even greater. The high and lofty one is the holy one. And we lowly people, by birth, by nature, are unholy ones, sinners. And yet the lofty says, I dwell with the lowly. What a contrast. With whom? With which lowly people does the lofty God dwell? We understand from the context of Scripture that God does not dwell with all human beings head for head, but He dwells with those that He has eternally chosen in His counsel predestinated unto life everlasting, those who He has given to Christ, for whom Christ died, who are covered with the blood of Christ. His grace and His dwelling is a particular dwelling. He dwells with His people. But now what this text shows us is what God works in the hearts of His people. He works in them so that they are a humble people. Of a contrite spirit. God dwells with and draws near to the the lowly who are humble. Humble. Humility is a lowliness of mind. Humility is acknowledging God as God. Humility is standing before the word of God such as this text and perceiving something of who God is and then looking at myself in relationship to God and recognizing He is the high and lofty and holy one and I am lowly. I am dust and a sinner besides. And recognition of that fact informs and controls and governs how I conduct myself towards this God and conduct myself towards others around me. It's a lowliness of mind in which I lay myself low before the high and lofty one. One who is humble then is also going to be contrite. Contrition is humility manifest with regard to my sin. The one who is humble recognizes the reality of his sin. And he's broken over it. That's really what the word contrite means. It means to be broken into pieces. The contrite person is the one who is broken hearted over his sin. Who sees it clearly for what it is. As provoking God to his face. And who grieves over it. And says the same thing that God says about it. The humble and the contrite. Says with Isaiah in Isaiah 6 verse 5. Woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The humble and the contrite. Are like the publican in Jesus' parable. Who stood afar off and would not lift up so much as his eyes. Unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, 
God be merciful to me a sinner. With those. God dwells. Thus the warning of the text. God does not draw near. To the proud. To the impenitent. But turns his face away from them. God is a God who dwells. As he says. With the humble and the contrite. Why? Why will God only dwell with the humble and the contrite? And the answer to that question is what we've seen about God. Because He is the high and lofty one. Because He is the high and lofty one, He will only dwell with the lowly. Nothing is more offensive to the high and lofty one as lowly creatures and sinners pretending to be the high and lofty one. And that's what pride is. You want to get to the root of pride. Pride is not recognizing God as God. Not recognizing me where I am. Not God. And lifting up myself before the face of God. Pride is me in my own way in this part of my life trying to be the high and lofty one. And that aggrieves the only one who is the high and lofty one. And thus, when a man walks in pride, God turns his face from that man. When a child of God walks in pride, God will chasten that child to turn him around. God will bring him low when he sets himself up. But God will do that for the salvation of his child. We must see that it is in God's character that he draws near to the humble and the contrite. The Bible says that over and over and over again. 1 Peter 5.5 God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Psalm 51 verse 17 A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Jesus declares in Luke 18 verse 14, For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, but he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Near the end of this very book, Isaiah 66 verse 2, God says, But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. And so you see, there is a twofold application for us tonight, beloved. The first is what this text is intended to be a word of comfort to us lowly believers. A gospel word. The God who dwells in the highest heights will draw near and dwell with the lowest sinner. Believe that? That's the gospel. He will draw near to the lowest sinner who is humble and contrite before him. Because of who God is. It's not because humility or contrition is a condition. We know that. 
None of God's saving benefits are based upon what we do or the works we perform. Humility, contrition is worked in the heart of the child of God by the very grace of God that saves him. But due to the very nature of God, he will not dwell with the proud. Those who exalt themselves, he will turn his face from them and abase them. But humility is pleasing in his sight. Delightful to him. Humility, contrition, touches the Father's heart, you might say. And while pride is most offensive to him, few things please the high and lofty one. Like a humble and a contrite heart. So people of God, as you know your sin, as you wrestle with guilt, be mindful of that. You can say with David, the contrite heart, God will not despise. Though he is lofty, though he is high, yet he will receive me for Christ's sake. He is the lofty God who dwells with the lowly. Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Jesus was teaching the general truth that all of God's people who mourn will one day have all of their tears wiped away. But the more specific truth there is, all those who mourn over their sins will be comforted. God will draw near and comfort them. And that's what he does tonight in this word of the gospel. Believing sinner, you who are humble and contrite, hear what God says. I dwell. Him that is of a humble and a contrite spirit. But then the second part of the application is the warning to the proud and the impenitent. And understand that when we walk impenitently in sin, when we minimize it, when we say, no big deal, I'll keep holding on to this sin in that part of my life, I will keep enjoying it, that is pride. Because when we walk in sin, when we refuse to let it go, when we refuse to get rid of it, what we are saying is, God says no to this, but I don't care. I will have my way, not God's way. I lift myself up before the high and lofty one. And the warning of the text is, those who exalt themselves shall be abased. Let this word press comfort upon our hearts and let it also press this warning upon our hearts so that where we may be walking in sin, we may see it and be humbled and turn from that sin. How can this be? God, who is the high and lofty one, declares that he is pleased to dwell With the lowly, poor sinners like you and me, how can this be? A moment ago, it was mentioned it's not because we earn something from God or we fulfill a condition. How can it be? Christ. That's how. The servant of the Lord who has been declared in the preceding chapters of the book of comfort. The servant of the Lord 
who a few chapters earlier in Isaiah 53 was set forth as the man of sorrows acquainted with grief who gives his life for the salvation of his people, the chastisement of whom brings peace and salvation to us lowly sinners. That's how. The most amazing thing Even more amazing than everything that we've looked at in the text so far. The most wonderful story ever told. Is the gospel story that Jesus came into the world. And this is the confession of the humble and the contrite sinner. Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Do you say that this evening? I'm the chief of sinners. Say it, but don't say it with despair. Because Jesus came into the world to save you, chief of sinners. The high and lofty God humbled himself, became lowly in order to save the lowly chief of sinners that you and I are. The lofty God laid Himself low that He might lift the lowly to dwell in the high and holy place with Him. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. God the Son is the high and lofty One who inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, who dwelleth in the high and holy place. And yet, He came down to inhabit our flesh. He made Himself lowly. So much so that He dwelt among us. He assumed to Himself our dust nature. He became man. So much so that the high and lofty one, God the Son, according to His assumed human nature, became tied to time, bound by space, dependent, weak, a mortal human being. This, the Son of God, the Holy One, the Holy One, comes in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8 verse 3. He assumed Our flesh, our flesh subject to all of the infirmities and the effects of sin. And yet in our flesh, Jesus remained the Holy One, never once sinning. He had no sin of His own, and yet He heaped upon His own shoulders your sins and my sins. The high and lofty One became lowly. And not only that, He went As low as you can go. Calvary. The cross. Lifted up on that tree. He bore the curse. Lifted up upon that tree. He descended into hell itself. For you and for me. The high and lofty one became lowly. God exalts the humble. 
And so the, the Lord exalted His humble Son, raised Him from the dead, seated Him at His right hand, and now Christ, yet in our flesh, reigns. He is the highly exalted One at the right hand of the Father. He became lowly to rescue the lowly. and He is exalted on high that He might exalt the lowly. And that God may keep this word where he says, I, the high and lofty and holy one, dwell with the lowly. He said before that awe and adoration is the proper response to beholding who God is, the glory, the splendor of his attributes. Stand in awe again before the unsurpassable majesty, the unsearchable glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The lofty one become lowly that he might dwell with us. This is a mystery that will everlastingly prompt our praise. That the high and lofty one has been pleased to wed the glory of His name to the salvation and the blessing and the eternal glorification of a lowly people like you and me. What a God we have. And because of that work of Christ upon the cross, the last part of our verse is true. We have a lifting grace that is given. Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That idea, or the idea of that word revive is to give life and strength. Our text isn't talking about that first giving of life that we call regeneration. That's already, that's already in view. That's already happened. After all, a believer can only be humble and contrite if he is spiritually alive. The text is talking about that continual supply of God's lifting grace to lift our hearts, to lift our heads, to strengthen our hands day by day. That grace is won for us by the work of Christ, the high and lofty one who became lowly for us. And that's part of what the Lord's Supper was for this morning. God gave us this means of grace. To enliven us. To strengthen us. To lift our hearts. Because at the table, we saw the truth of this text. The high and lofty one met with us a lowly people. The high and lofty one was pleased to dwell with the humble and the contrite. The high and lofty one prepared a table. Bread and wine. Signifying the body and blood of Jesus Christ for our refreshment. We would faint were it not for the Lord's continual supply of this lifting, reviving grace. 
that binds the brokenhearted. It's the word of God that comes to us and says your sins are forgiven. Humble believer, forgiven, blotted out, wiped away by the blood of Christ. It's the grace that comes to us in our hardships, in our trials. Strengthens us to go forward. Gives us that joy, that peace, that hope that has no human explanation. But is founded upon the faithfulness of God, who He is, what He's done in Jesus Christ. Let's live out of that grace the days ahead. Beholding who our God is. Beholding what He's done for us. Then we want to live for Him. And that's the implied calling of the text and the calling of the Lord's Supper. Now that you've sat at the table of the high and lofty one, go forth, but live a different life. Live a new life. Live for the high and lofty one. Live a life that is renewed. Depend upon His lifting grace. And go forward with an uplifted head. With an uplifted heart. And with hands that are eager to serve Him. And to praise Him. Rest and rely ever and entirely upon Christ. Feed upon Him daily. Walk in that newness of life. Every word of God is sure. It's tried. Because God is who God is. The high, lofty one. Who inhabiteth eternity. Yet who is pleased to save. To dwell with the lowly. Amen. Our faithful God. Our glorious God. Through the window of this text. We have glimpsed. Something of thy glory. And thy greatness. And we stand in awe. More so the gospel words of comfort. We pray that thou wilt press them upon our hearts. That even as we behold thy glory. And thy majesty. We may be thrilled by the reality. That thou dost dwell with the lowly. That thou hast come with grace to save us from our sins. Thou hast come to us in Jesus Christ. By thy grace thou dost bring us low. That we might be lifted up to dwell with thee. Give us daily that supply of thy lifting grace to revive us. And bless the Lord's Supper that we have partaken of this morning. May it too strengthen. Strengthen us for our Christian lives. This all we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.